Hear now the gospel of Jesus Christ according to Luke. Jesus also said to the disciples, a certain rich man heard that his household manager was wasting his estate. He called the manager in and said to him, what is this I hear about you? Give me a report of your administration because you can no longer serve as my manager. The household manager said to himself, what will I do now that my master is firing me as his manager? I'm not strong enough to dig and I'm too proud to beg. I know what I'll do so that when I'm removed from my management position, people will welcome me into their houses. One by one, the manager sent for each person who owed his master money. He said to the first, how much do you owe my master? He said, 900 gallons of olive oil. The manager said to him, take your contract, sit down quickly and write 450 gallons. Then the manager said to another, how much do you owe? He said, 1,000 bushels of wheat. He said, take your contract and write 800. The master commended the dishonest manager because he acted cleverly. People who belong to this world are more clever in dealing with their peers than are people who belong to the light. I tell you, use worldly wealth to make friends for yourselves so that when it's gone, you will be welcomed into the eternal homes. Whoever is faithful with little is also faithful with much, and the one who is dishonest with little is also dishonest with much. If you haven't been faithful with worldly wealth, who will trust you with true riches? If you haven't been faithful with someone else's property, who will give you your own? No household servant can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be loyal to the one and have contempt for the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. This is the word of the Lord. So this is the scripture <laughs> that John Wesley chose to use as the basis for his sermon on the use of money. I mean, of all the scriptures on money in the Bible, and there are many. Remember last week we talked about the fact that Jesus talks about money more than anything else except the kingdom of God. I mean, Jesus talks more about money than heaven and hell combined. He talks more about money than love. Out of his 39 parables, at least one third of them are about money. And our beloved faith father <laughs> chose this. I mean, the only way that this makes sense to me is if his three rules happen to be be as incompetent as you can be so that your boss fires you for mismanaging their assets and two, be as crooked as you can and make sure you cook your boss's books before he has a chance to change the locks and three, be as self-serving as you can and make sure you cheat your boss out of their profits to ingratiate yourself with their clients before you get fired. I mean, I really wonder what in the world John Wesley was thinking. Not only that, I mean, what was Jesus thinking? I mean, lifting up a crooked manager as a model for faithful living? 
I mean, I know this is a parable and that Jesus uses parables typically to shock us into paradoxical thinking so that we might become more enlightened, but seriously? How in the world does Wesley get earn, save, give all you can out of this parable? You have a corrupt manager who's praised as being clever by the man he's just cheated, and Jesus lifts up his criminal activity as an ideal to strive for in a life of faith. I mean, is it opposite day? That's what it seems like. Scholars throughout the centuries have scratched their heads over this particular parable, so we are in good company. They've come up over the years with basically three possibilities. One of them is that the manager is just flat out cheating his boss, period, end of story. Another is that the manager has reduced the client's debts by the amount of interest that had been charged, appearing to be righteous since that was a practice that uh, they were dissuaded against. And third, is that the manager deducted his own commission from the total owed. Now options two and three do cast the manager in a little less um, deceptive light. I mean, if he's reduced the debts by forgiving the interest, then he appears to be acting righteously and he's making his boss look good for extending grace and forgiving the interest which also, by the way, makes it a little bit difficult for his boss to add the interest back in once he finds out about it without looking bad. If he's deducted his own commission, he does take a personal hit, but he buys himself gratitude from those that he hopes he'll be able to do business with once he's lost his job. There are a couple of problems, though, with both of these options. First of all, neither one of them explains why Jesus refers to the manager as dishonest. And if he's deducted interest, it's difficult based on the amounts that he's deducted in these two particular cases to, to determine a consistent tax rate that would have been plausible for the time. I suppose the bottom line is it really doesn't matter. I mean, whatever the method to is madness, the end result is that the manager shrewdly makes use of the resources at his disposal to make the rich man look honest and good and at the same time secure his own future. It's actually pretty savvy. And this is what the rich man praises him for. And this is why Jesus points out that the people of this world do a better job using worldly resources than do the people of the light. That's us, by the way. We are the people of the light, those who have met Jesus and chosen to follow him. Many of whom, particularly in the early church and even today, through certain vows of poverty among particular religious types, have summarily rejected worldly possessions and wealth rather than recognize all the good that could be done if they shrewdly and faithfully use it which is how Jesus comes to, it's true, we cannot serve both God and money. 
But Jesus' point is not that we should reject money altogether. His point is that we can serve God faithfully and well with money as our means. Which is how John Wesley springboards off of this parable into his sermon on the use of money. The first thing Wesley does in his sermon is to dispel his hearers of the notion that money is evil. And he reminds us that what 1 Timothy actually says is that it's the love of money that is the root of all evil. Money, Wesley argues, is actually a great and excellent gift of God. And that it's the bounden duty of Christian disciples to practice what Wesley called the first and great rule of Christian wisdom as it relates to money. Namely, gain all you can. Now, in our culture, we would say, earn all you can. And for many of us, the concept is a little bit uncomfortable. I mean, we wonder, is it really faithful to have as our goal to earn all you can? Isn't that greedy? We often hear that we're supposed to reject the things of this world to avoid temptation. And doesn't money afford us all sorts of temptation? And aren't we generally suspicious of people, especially preachers, who earn a lot of money? Well, Wesley does set out some ethical guidelines. He points out, first of all, he says, we ought to gain all we can without buying gold too dear, without paying more for money than what it's worth doesn't want you to pay too high a price for the wealth that you pursue. Don't, for example, and in today's culture, this would make many psychotherapists extremely happy with John Wesley because it's extremely relevant for people in our culture. He says, don't begin or continue in any business which necessarily deprives you of proper seasons for food and sleep. Wesley speaking to the workaholics among us who sacrifice their own health at the expense of making more money. He leans into Proverbs 23, 4, which says, don't wear yourself out trying to get rich. Be smart enough to stop. Apparently, we come from a long line of Jewish workaholic brothers and sisters. I'd wager that John Wesley was preaching to the choir because he could be just a tiny bit obsessive. Laziness is a temptation, but in our culture, compulsive working and producing and consuming, compulsive doing, are often more prevalent. So he points out that Sabbath, which comes from the Hebrew Shabbat, means to cease to do or to rest. God established the practice in the very first verses of our Bible. After working to create for six days, God rests on the seventh day and commands, it's an order, y'all, and it becomes the fourth of our Ten Commandments. The penalty of violation, by the way, for this particular commandment is death. God commands that we follow the divine example and rest. Old Testament scholar Walter Brueggemann in his brilliance argues that Sabbath is about discovering a new way of living 
that breaks the cycle of anxious acquisition and competition and opens us to new ways of living every day of the week. I like that a lot. I mean, a balanced life ultimately is more productive than a workaholic life. It's definitely more sustainable and sustaining. I mean, there are seasons and circumstances which cause us to burn the candle at both ends, but when it, come, when it becomes a way of life, we're dealing with something much bigger. And I'd wager that most of us have experienced it at some point in time. Life becomes about consistent, anxious production. But actually, nothing creative or meaningful or even particularly helpful is really being accomplished. And I don't know about y'all, but when I get in that zone, I start to eat junky food. I no longer bother with exercise. I get sleep deprived. Our relationships suffer. We don't take time anymore to just sit down with our families and friends to play or to pray, to just sit in the presence of God. Even our work, the thing that we've become so obsessed with, begins to suffer. We start to make poor choices. We bring less than helpful attitudes into the workplace. Y'all, balance and rest, Sabbath, it's a spiritual practice. And it requires faith and wisdom. Wisdom to discern what it is that God desires for and from us in any particular moment or any particular day. And faith that God's purposes are best served when we choose to live within our limits and trust that where we end, God does in fact begin. It's not all up to us. Now I know I'm preaching to the choir. This is a constant growing edge for me. Wesley says, earn all you can, but not at the expense of your soul. Don't participate in a sinful trade, which is anything contrary to the law of God or country, or which is not consistent with a good conscience. Proverbs 1.19 says, these are the ways of all who seek unjust gain. It costs them their lives. Don't do anything illegal or immoral to earn money. And earn all you can, but not at the expense of your neighbor. Both locally and globally, these days, we are all connected. It's important that we don't harm others to get ahead. All these practices fall into the category of not paying too dearly for your gold. Don't do it. Wesley says, do earn in ways that honor God. Gain all you can, Wesley insists, but gain by honest industry. Use all possible diligence in your calling. Wesley understood the concept of call in a similar fashion as Martin Luther did before him, which essentially is a person using their gifts, the gifts that God has given them to further God's purposes in the world. And it's not just clergy who are called by God, and not all people are called to a religious vocation. But every one of us is called. And our task, again, invoking God's wisdom as our guide, is to figure out where our gifts and passion meet the world's needs. 
When we do that, we found our calling. We found our vocation. I really wish someone had told me that a long time ago. I was so confused earlier in life. I was torn between where my passion might lead and practicality. I mean, I didn't know. Nobody told me that following my passion and using my gifts as God called me might possibly feed both my soul and my stomach. My first real career decision was choosing to study theater in college, in particular acting, because I loved it and I was good at it. But in order to, to achieve the prevalent cultural understanding of success, I had decided I was going to have to be a famous actress so that I could make lots of money, right? Well, the statistics on that probability are not encouraging. So despite the fact that I was presented with some amazing opportunities post-grad, fear caused me constantly to vacillate between what I now understand was a call and what felt much more secure to me. There were two opportunities in particular one was the chance to participate in a summer acting program in Copenhagen, Denmark. And then after that, I was invited to study in Circle in the Square Theater, which is on Broadway. And in both cases, I accepted the opportunity and I began. But partway through, I quit. Two of my greatest regrets. I abandoned both of them midway through for fear that despite all the opportunities and effort, I would fail to become wildly rich and famous. I didn't know that maybe the point wasn't to become rich and famous, but to discover how God might use my gifts and passion to further God's mission in the world. By the way, it is terrifying and exciting to live into God's call. Again, if I had known about call back in those days, I might have understood that the fear I was experiencing was part of the gig and I needed to live into it. I ended up in a series of roles in the finance industry, in banking, mortgage brokerage, Fixed and variable insurance products, I was a stockbroker, I was a business analyst, and I was successful. I was moving up the corporate ladder, but my soul hurt. It was not where my passion lie. That's when I met James and got married, and when I became a mother, I was given the opportunity, I was given the grace, really, to step off the corporate treadmill for a while and stay at home with my kids. And during that period of time, I reconnected with my faith and I got deeply connected in a church and with a pastor who taught me about call. And when he heard about my theater background, he asked me if I would start a drama ministry, which I did, and it was tons of fun. And eventually he invited me to discern a call to ministry. And I learned that God 
redeems all things. That theater training and those opportunities and gifts that I thought I had wasted, those dreams and that calling that I felt I had betrayed, God gathered it all up and made it new. I absolutely use my theater training for God's purposes in worship planning and leadership and scripture readings, certainly in preaching. It's my hope that we, this church, will do a good job teaching our youth about call and not just to usher them into ministry, but to use their gifts and their passion in whatever God calls them and to understand that God can use that. You cannot serve God and wealth, Jesus says, but we are called to serve God by means of wealth, by means of whatever we are able to earn. So Wesley concludes, gain all you can. With the gifts and calling God's given me, I do earn. I earn all that I can. And with my earnings, I'm able to be generous. I'm able to support God's work through this amazing church. I've got a great gig. <laughs> it is amazing. I hope you got your brochure in the mail this week. It looks like this. I know that some people reported that theirs was a little tattered when they received it. If that's the case for you or if you have not received one, there are some out in the entryway as you leave on that desk on the side. If you did get yours, I hope that you've taken a chance to read it. I hope that you were struck by how amazing this church is. And I hope that you are inspired by all that God is doing with our gifts, with your gifts. In whatever work we are called to, it is faithful to earn all you can with the purpose in mind of fulfilling God's purposes for our lives and for our community and for our world. The light of God's wisdom illumined for me the gifts God gave me and a purpose for which God could use them. And now I get to live with a deep connection between my faith and my work. I am not rich and famous. But thanks be to God, both my stomach and especially my soul are so full. Amen.